This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi and is sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Big Y Pharmacy and Wellness Center, Ratchford Eye Center, Coveris, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You're encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information, and we answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and welcome to the program. Uh, Looking forward to today's program, and I had a great week this week. Uh, On Monday, I had the honor of giving a lecture to the medical students and dental students at the University of Connecticut. And what made this kind of a special experience was we got to use a new building called the Academic Rotunda. It's actually a classroom in the round, uh, something I'd never seen before, and it was just completed at the University of Connecticut. And essentially, it's a rounded room with a lot of individual tables. There's electronics galore with a microphone at each table, and it's used for team-based learning. So my discussion was had from the center of the room, and there are screens all over the rotunda itself. And they could follow, the students can follow slides, answer questions. And with team-based learning, they all kind of collaborate to come up with an answer to a particular question. My lecture was on traumatic brain injury and the use of the Glasgow Coma Scale and, you know, how it should be used in terms of managing medical care. So it was a very interesting experience, very forward thinking, and and I and I think that that's going to be the future. So it was great to see. And what I was also impressed with in talking to a lot of students, most of these students are from Connecticut and plan on staying in Connecticut. So uh, I think that's something we need to do more of is try to encourage young physicians and young dentists and other professionals to stay in our state because it is a great state. On today's show, we're going to have Ms. Kathleen Noon. She's going to be calling in and talking about an exciting new program at Trinity Health. She's the regional executive director for oncology there, and they have a desensitization program for chemotherapy. In the second half of the show, we're going to be chatting with Mr. Fred Potter. Mr. Potter is the training center coordinator for Lawrence and Memorial Hospital. He's a paramedic and EMS instructor. So we're going to talk about some practical – you know how I love – Simple things that you can do to affect change. And clearly CPR, ACLS are right there. Something simple you could learn and save a life. This day in medicine, May 13, 1857, Dr. Ronald Ross was born. Now, Dr. Ross was a British Army physician, and he was awarded the 1902 Nobel Prize because he discovered that the Anopheles mosquito would carry malaria. And it was very important because people were dying, particularly in the Panama Canal and in arid areas. People were dying, and we didn't know why. So he found out it was because of the Anopheles mosquito being a vector carrying and transmitting the malaria uh, that we could take appropriate precautions and still do uh, to this day. 
1883, on this day, May 13, 1883, Dr. George Papanicola was born. Uh, Dr. Papanicola was the Greek-American physician who developed the pap smear, something, again, we still use today for detecting uterine cancer. And he came up with that discovery, and his development was in 1933. So, again, these are things we still use today. My column, week before last, actually, in the Norwich Bulletin, has gotten a lot of attention regarding spinal fusion. Uh, I used it in my healthy sports column to talk a little bit about Tiger Woods now having an extensive spinal fusion in his low back, and previously Peyton Manning having his neck fused, and yet being able to return to professional-level sports. The human spine is kind of like a Jenga game. Uh, you remember Jenga? We had all those things stacked up and used to try to take a piece out. Well, what happens is as discs get herniated and fractured, you take that piece out, but you have to stabilize the spine if you take too much out. And you do that by putting in what's called a fusion. So you take the two bony vertebrae and fuse them together by putting in a plate and screws and by putting in some bone chips. What happens as a result, obviously when you fuse it, it loses some of its range of motion, some of its flexibility. So with that, it becomes a little more difficult to return to professional sports. The point of my column was really that people shouldn't be afraid of having a spinal fusion. It alleviates pain in many cases, and in other cases, it really allows you to get back to playing a sport. And the person I had as my uh, professional reference there was Dr. Isaac Moss from the University of Connecticut, where he does spinal surgery. So if you get a chance, look that up. It's at the NorwichBulletin.com. Next up, we're going to be chatting with my first guest today, Ms. Kathleen Noon, and we're going to be talking about desensitization of chemotherapy. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and this morning we have the pleasure of having Ms. Kathleen Noon on. Ms. Noon is the Executive Director for Oncology for Trinity Healthcare, and we wanted to talk about some new programs going on over at Trinity Health. Kathy, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Um, let's chat a little bit. You know, chemotherapy has changed a lot. I mean, it's really kind of evolved over time. Before we get into the new program, can you really tell our listeners a little bit about how chemotherapy has changed and what infusion centers are, things like that? So, chemo, you're absolutely correct, is that over the past few years, um, the modality of chemotherapy has advanced tremendously. What we're finding now is that as new drugs come onto the market, um, we're able to better specifically target um, uh, a patient's tumor based upon the molecular profiling or the genetic makeup of that particular tumor. It's called personalized genomics, and as we understand the molecular structure behind the cancers themselves, we are better able to choose the right uh, either immunotherapy, chemotherapy, or biologic agents in order to attack that cancer. So we've made great strides in terms of um, survivorship and um, treating cancers so that uh, the outcomes become much more favorably than they were, say, a decade, a decade or so ago. 
an effusion center is um, typically, um, you know, a dozen or 20-so chairs um, staffed by specialized nursing staff uh, that are uh, certified in chemotherapy, biotherapy, administration, as well as having specialized knowledge around oncology care in general. Um, they are partners, uh, they're part of the entire healthcare delivery system that is spearheaded by the patient's oncologist who determines the initial treatment plan and protocol that the patient needs based upon, as I talked about, the uh, particular makeup of their cancer. Um, the patient in an infusion center is oftentimes supported by a whole host of other types of support services because we can't attack cancer in a silo. It takes a a multidisciplinary team. Oftentimes, patients need a couple of different types of therapy in order to attack their cancer. On top of that, there is a psychological burden of having a cancer diagnosis. So there are social workers involved, nutritionists, nursing staff, um, as well as the, the critical oncologist. Just, um, that's part of the team. Kathy, so one of the things, as you said, we have so many different types of chemotherapy now, new drugs. Uh, you know, when they first came out, you know, they were best described as poison. I mean, we we're trying to poison bad yep. cells. And things have changed so much. They're more tolerable. How have we done this, especially with your new program at St. Francis and throughout uh, Trinity, to make people more comfortable with certain drugs? Well, the, the reality is, is that as these drugs come out onto the market, um, they, they are a, a, a mix of chemicals, and um, the chemicals are specifically designed in, in order to do a very targeted job. But each patient's um, individual makeup means that in some cases, their reactions to those medications that are life-saving and are meant to treat their cancer can sometimes not mix well. And so the idea behind and the concept behind desensitization is to develop a way in which we can support the patient's um, particular makeup that might be causing a reaction with the chemotherapy that they need in order to make sure that we can adequately treat them with the drugs that we know would be the the top-line choice in order to combat their cancer. What we don't want within Trinity Health and at St. Francis is for folks to have to choose between treating their cancer and an allergic reaction. Uh, We want to support them through what might be um, a reaction to the chemotherapy by making sure that we have the right support mechanisms in place. At the end of the day, um, you know, it's not pleasant to get chemotherapy, and we know that. So besides the actual makeup of the drugs and how we handle um, their infusions, their um, their, um, molecular and chemical makeup, and make sure that we're supporting them with the right um, antiemetics as well as um, um, anti-reaction types of medications, um, it also has to do with the environment and the caring and the compassion of the staff. This particular program stemmed from the fact that as these newer medications are coming on the market, we are seeing some um, increase in terms of uh, medication reactions. Some are expected. They're known side effects of the medications themselves, and in some instances, it happens to be the way that the chemicals are reacting with the patient's um, makeup and causing an allergic reaction. You know, I wasn't aware of that, that we're seeing more of that. Uh, And I guess one of the things that should be clarified is the difference between an allergy to the medication and an intolerance to the medication. Uh, 
because Correct. you're specifically treating the allergy. Do you want to explain that a little bit? Sure. There are some, in some instances, and let me clarify around um, the increases, there's newer classifications and medications that are coming out, um, and we're learning more and more about them as to, you know, how they're being infused, how they can be used, uh, and that's the concept of research behind um, each of these medications as they come out on the market. There are... Um, expected side effects that are known that were identified during the development phase of these particular medications as they come out on the market. And in some instances, the intolerance could be associated with nausea or vomiting or uh, dehydration or how um, the body reacts. And we have different medications to help uh, mitigate those side effects, if you will. And in other instances, um, what we're seeing is that there are some um, mild or reactions and signs and symptoms that we have to stop and evaluate. Is it a intolerance or a reaction or is it a true allergy, if you will? And we have the help of an allergist on staff at our cancer center in Hartford that works as part of this team in order for us to determine um, if it is, in fact, a true allergy. If the allergy is suspected, we actually go through and assist the patient going through an extensive allergy testing panel to determine if it's a true allergy to the medication versus an intolerance or a slight reaction. Then based upon that allergy testing, we can then customize a protocol for that particular patient around the chemotherapy that they need with the support of the allergist on staff and in collaboration with their oncologists to make sure that they're getting the right combination of support medicines along with their chemotherapy that allows them to continue on the course of their treatment. Kathy, is, is St. Francis the only place doing this? Because I, I frankly haven't heard of it before. In various places, we are modeling our uh, particular program off of um, a program that was developed up at Dana-Farber, and we're also in collaboration with um, some of the expertise that's happening down at Smilo Cancer Hospital, and it took... Um, Quite frankly, the lessons developed at both of those places and then developing um, our own um, customized program for our particular patient population. Um, desensitization um, has been or handling adverse reactions associated with chemotherapy has gone on historically as we've treated patients, but coming up with a very specific customized protocol for these patients oftentimes means they have to travel to specialty centers. Um, such as in Boston as Dana-Farber or in other parts of the country. And developing it here within our local community is really what Trinity Health uh, New England is all about, is providing easy access to what is very specialized care for our regional um, communities in order to make sure that they can receive that care closer to home. Kathy, in, in general, with Trinity Health, how many infusion centers do you have? I know, obviously, we're talking about the one at St. Francis, but I think people are not necessarily familiar with the term Trinity Health yet. Uh, so if you could tell them where these infusion centers are and give us approximately, you know, how many patients do you folks treat? 
Well, that's a great question, is that you're correct. Trinity Health New England as a regional enterprise is, is coming together. Uh, we uh, are forming um, the regional market, and it's a makeup of um, our local community that spans from Springfield, Massachusetts. We have our Mercy Medical Center, our Sister Caritas Cancer Center up there in Springfield, which has 14 chairs and a staff of eight medical oncologists, as well as a very robust radiation oncology program. We have an infusion center in Enfield um, that is supported by the Johnson Memorial Cancer Program, um, our infusion center and cancer center in Hartford, which is um, really uh, two programs, if you will, is we have a specialized program around women's cancers and a women's infusion center in our comprehensive women's health center. And we also have infusion centers in the Waterbury market as part of our St. Mary's Hospital and their collaboration with the Harold Lever Cancer Center. Um, you're talking about thousands of patients across, um, you know, multiple states, um, running from the Western Mass market all the way down to mid-central Connecticut. Uh, what's nice about that is as we come together as a regional enterprise, um, our cancer program is sharing best practices across the market, making sure that we have um, standardized protocols in place, sharing um, our patients' data through our um, common platform of our, our electronic patient record, and making sure that our oncologists are constantly on top of the cutting edge and are developing comprehensive cancer programs across the enterprise. So it's relatively new. We're very excited about coming together. Kathy, thank you for your time today and making everyone aware of this. Now, if someone is in this situation, how would they reach out to you? The best number to call, um, I would suggest, is 860-714-4680, and the staff can connect anybody that is inquiring about additional information or needs to get in contact with us. Uh, Dr. Sue Rabinow and Shana Burke, our allergists, have been spearheading this at St. Francis, doing a fantastic job, and we'll make sure that anybody that needs additional information will get in contact with them. That's great. So it's 860-716-4680. 714 Yep. 714-4680. We're going to put that up on the website. Kathy, thanks again for taking time today. Thank you for having me. Okay. Um, so interesting to talk about uh, this chemotherapy and the approaches. You know, one of the things uh, she kept saying and Kathy kept saying was, you know, really this multi dimensional, this multidisciplinary approach to treating an illness, and cancer is no exception. So here, you know, we always hear about um, the nurses. We hear about the oncologists, the physicians who, you know, spearhead this. We have oncologic surgeons, cancer surgeons, and now we have brought in the discipline of allergy and in making it set up so that the most effective treatment can be used even in someone who may be allergic to this. And those are the terms you keep hearing in medicine now, this multidisciplinary comprehensive approach to treating patients. Uh, we hear it in neurology with stroke and in other things, usually at big centers like St. Francis, UConn, Hartford Hospital. So with that, uh, we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to be back with my next guest, Mr. Fred Potter, who is the Training Center Coordinator for Lawrence and Memorial Hospital. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. <music> We're back on Healthy Rounds. That is Staying Alive by the Bee Gees. And 
In our discussion with my next guest, Mr. Fred Potter, you're going to realize the significance of that song and how that rhythm can save a life. And with that, Fred, welcome to the show. Good morning, Dr. Alessi. Thank you. Um, Mr. Potter is the coordinator for the training center at Lawrence and Memorial Hospital. He is a paramedic, um, but an EMS instructor. And Fred, a lot has changed. Every time we hear more about CPR, ACLS, things are always evolving. So I thought it was important to have you on to let people understand. We love things that are simple to do, simple to learn, and yet can result in saving a life. So how are things changing in this field? Well, um, interestingly, uh, so every five years, the American Heart Association uh, uh, releases guidelines based on uh, research. They spend millions of dollars on research, and they uh, change things about CPR. So, you, you know, some of us can think back years ago where it was done completely different and much more complicated. But as you just said, you know, uh, the simpler the better, and people are more likely to do it. But what they do now is every five years, um, you know, this is all evidence-based medicine. So they're really just tweaking it. There's not any radical changes, which is great. They do try to keep it as simple as possible to encourage people to do CPR when, when it's needed because time, you know, time is everything in that situation. Um, so things, things that have changed, uh, you, you know, you played the song Staying Alive, and uh, that is uh, uh, the proper compression ratio of 100 to 120 beats a minute. So when we're doing compressions on a patient, uh, that's the speed that we want. So when I teach a class, I, I tell people that, and I, I tell them you can thank me when you can't get to sleep tonight and you still got that song in the back of your head. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Um, Fred, the other thing that's changed over the years has been uh, just giving chest compressions and not breathing for the patient. How did that change come about? Well, uh, it's, it's really uh, the research shows that there are two things that are the most important in cardiac arrest survival. And it's a low number to start with, but even in the best of systems, you know, they can achieve 20%. But um, compressions and defibrillation are key. Early, early CPR uh, compression specifically and early defibrillation are the keys to uh, survival. So um, uh, those, those are just critical components to any kind of a system. So that's why we really advocate training as many people as possible in CPR so that uh, a bystander starts CPR. Just quickly, Fred, can you give our listeners a, a, a kind of tutorial on CPR? For example, um, where you should give the compressions, how deep they should be. You already said the pace should be uh, 120 per minute. Um, can can you get where where should they be compressing the chest if they come upon someone? Yeah, 100 to 120 a minute. No faster than 120. The research shows that after 120, uh, it, it's a negative effect, not a positive effect. So we should, we should be compressing on the lower half of the sternum. Um, so if, you know, if you uh, put your hands on your chest and that the, the breastbone right in the middle, the lower the lower half of it, not down on the abdomen, but actually on the sternum. So you're compressing the heart between your spine and the uh, sternum, the, the breastbone in the front. That didn't fully answer your question before about the emphasis on compression-only CPR. Um, so it, it's okay to do compressions only if you don't have any kind of a barrier device and you don't want to do mouth-to-mouth -mouth on somebody because what's proven effective the most is the compressions and defibrillation, like I said earlier. So that's why it's okay to do compression-only CPR. Well, we're starting to see, and how, how far should you be pushing down on the chest? Yeah, so uh, about two inches. Well, actually, we say at least two inches on the adult. Two inches. Let's get to defibrillation, because you, you, you mentioned you brought that up. Can you explain to everybody what that is and what these things are? Because we're starting to see them more and more. Yeah, yeah that's a great thing. 
Um, so um, defibrillators are, when a person, goes, an adult mostly, goes into cardiac arrest, early on, uh, they're likely in um, what we call ventricular fibrillation. And that uh, electricity is needed to reverse that condition. But we can prolong that uh, phase when a person is in ventricular fibrillation by doing excellent compressions. So that's really the importance of it. So um, we find a defibrillator uh, in a public place and uh, big, big advocacy for public access to defibrillators. And you can find them all over the place, uh, uh, restaurants, supermarkets, malls. Uh, public buildings, your town hall, your library, um, even hospitals have uh, AEDs. You know, they have the fancy ones on a code cart, but in areas where are non-clinical, they have uh, defibrillators. So the idea is uh, they really, even an untrained person can use them. But when you take a CPR class, there's always defibrillator training included. So when you're doing CPR somewhere, when I'm teaching, I always have people go through places where we could find defibrillators because you should not be surprised if someone shows up. If you're doing CPR in some public place in a mall or something, you should be wondering, where is that closest defibrillator and why has someone not found it yet? Can you hurt someone using a defibrillator? No. You know, um, so we only put them on pulseless patients. You know, people that were doing CPR, we would never put a defibrillator on somebody who's just having chest pain and just in case. We only put them on people we're doing CPR on, but they are very accurate. There's two rhythms that they can read uh, and that, to a very high degree of specificity. Um, they're, they, they're always accurate. They're never wrong. And they just they, they have a built-in uh, algorithm, and they just take you through that. So you follow the prompts of the defibrillator. There's really nothing to be afraid of, and they can't hurt you. The, the only thing they could hurt, they, they could hurt somebody if, if they weren't careful and they were touching the patient as they were shocking. So if you're involved in a cardiac arrest, just keep an eye on the person pushing the button. It's not going to kill you, but you know they'll be off your Christmas card list because it'll hurt. Well, one of the other things that comes up, if you're on a wet surface, so if you're trying to use this in a wet field or in the snow, uh, as if you have to revive somebody on, on a mountain, is that dangerous? It is. Well, that is one of the contraindications. We would not use it uh, on a wet surface or in a flammable atmosphere. For example, if somebody went to cardiac arrest near some gasoline pumps or something, we would remove them from that area before we defibrillate. And just like the wet surface, because water conducts electricity. And, it, you know, um, that's just a practice that we use. We, we would remove them from that water area. Or if they were wet, we pull them out of a body of water, we would dry them first. One of the things I guess the defibrillator does, because let's face it, sometimes you come upon a patient and it's difficult to find the pulse, uh, even if there may be one. For example, if there's somebody who's morbidly obese, it becomes extremely difficult. So you yeah. put the defibrillator on. Will it be able to detect the pulse more accurately than you can by feeling either at the carotid or the radial? Uh, no, because the defibrillator only detects rhythms. It does not detect the pulse, so that's your obligation to do that. But, but just know that if they were in any kind of a normal rhythm, it will not want to shock. Defibrillators only want to shock when the patient is in one of two rhythms, ventricular fibrillation and ventricular tachycardia over 160. That's what they are programmed to recognize. Anything else, it will not shock. It only knows those two things. And all it knows about every other rhythm is it is not V-fib and it is not VTAC over 160. So that's why they're so safe. Well, wow, it's pretty amazing how rapidly this technology has progressed. We're going to take a short break. Then we're going to be back with my guest, Mr. Fred Potter. We're talking about CPR and training people for CPR so that we get more folks out there who could potentially save lives. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and today we're chatting with uh, my guest, uh, Mr. Fred Potter, who is the training coordinator 
at Lawrence and Memorial Hospital. If you have questions in this last segment, the phone number's here, 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. Fred, can you tell our listeners a little bit about the training center at Lawrence and Memorial? Um, That's where I've gotten my CPR and ACLS training and especially the simulation lab. There's a lot that's been stated. Actually, Grand Rounds this week at Hartford Hospital was about simulation of stroke and using a simulation of and walking through with young physicians as what to do with what time as part of a team with the nurses and pharmacists so that you can coordinate that exercise. So can you talk a little bit about um, the simulation lab you have at Lawrence and Memorial and how that works? Sure. Uh, so we, we, uh, we, do a lot, we do a lot of training. I have a lot of instructors in the community that do CPR training. We train like upwards of 2,000 people a year. Um, not, not all at the hospital. Many are out in the community learning CPR. It's like we were just talking about. Um, but we integrate with our um, advanced cardiac life support and pediatric advanced life support programs. We integrate high-fidelity simulation, which it, technology is just incredible. So we can, we can make a patient um, uh, respond like they really would if their heart rate was very slow or heart rate was very fast or they're having chest pain. We can uh, uh, give them actual vital signs and, and um, so when you check their blood pressure, they really have a blood pressure. It's actually a little scary at times. Um, you know, we, can, we can change the pupils, everything on a computer. Um, we, can, we can make it so that um, if we have to um, do interventions to a patient, when those interventions are done, like medicines or uh, electrocardioversion, which is kind of like fibrillation, but you know, as you know, a little different, synchronized, um, that uh, the patient responds to it and the rhythm actually changes from when, when the learner pushes the button and delivers the shock the rhythm actually changes like it would in a real patient. So uh, we, we find that very, very helpful. and It helps people remember. It's really a good learning experience for uh, people that we uh, train. Um, how should someone approach this? So if you're in the mall, somebody goes down, what should somebody do? I mean, we've talked about the chest compression, but even before that, how, um, what are the steps to do to, to intervene? Yeah, so, uh, you know, uh, of course, the obvious thing is always call for help early. Um, Even if it's not a cardiac arrest, that person needs help. So we're always going to want to call 911. But um, when we assess that person, we go up and and see if they're responsive. We just try a little pain stimuli, rub their chest. And if they don't respond, we would, um, you know, as a healthcare provider, we check their pulse and uh, look for any any signs of breathing. Uh, The lay rescuer is really just trained to uh, check for breathing whether or not the patients have any signs of life or is breathing. And then um, we would initiate CPR as soon as possible. And uh, calling for help is key because we, we have this chain of survival, right? And the bystanders are our early link in the chain of survival, early start of CPR, calling the 911 dispatcher. Um, these days, the dispatcher will teach someone how to do CPR if they don't know. Over the phone, they'll instruct you on doing CPR. And then uh, the EMS services come, you know, either basic life support ambulance supplemented by a paramedic and bring the patient to the emergency department. So all of these steps are crucial. If you miss any one of these steps, uh, it doesn't help the uh, potential outcome for the patient. So uh, assessing that patient and calling for help early are key. We have a question for you. I'm going to try and get this on the other line. And, okay. Uh, we have Nicholas from Manchester. Nicholas, welcome to the show. Uh, hello, gentlemen. You have a question. Uh, Yes, I do. Um, immediately after revival, uh, could you let us know about three things? Aspirin, nitroglycerin, and epinephrine. Okay. Epinephrine, I think, may be really far out, but I hear people talk about it. Could you Great. comment on those, please? Oh, 
Yeah, we're getting into the field more of advanced cardiac life support. Fred, why don't you take it? Sure. Okay, so um, Nick, great question. So when a person, when we when we do resuscitate a person, like we're doing CPR, and at some point they start breathing, or, or, or when we assess their pulse, they have a pulse, uh, that's not really a time to be uh, doing any one of those things. The, all the things you mentioned are things that we want to do before, uh, like a person's having chest pain. Um, aspirin is a very good thing to do, and if, if we believe it's um, a, a, a potential heart attack, is giving them aspirin, um, you know, three to four baby aspirin. Uh, like, you know, 320 milligrams, 325 milligrams is what we would usually do. That's like three or four baby aspirins. Nitroglycerin. Swallow or has sublingual? A... What's that? To swallow or sublingual? Uh, so they, so uh, baby aspirins are chewable. They're chewable. Okay. So that way they're absorbed quicker. Yeah, that's a great point that I didn't mention. Uh, uh, the advantage of baby aspirins is it will be absorbed quicker into, into the mucous membranes in the mouth. If you gave them regular aspirin, it would have to be digested. It wouldn't be released until it gets into their intestines. Uh, right. And, then, and epinephrine is a medicine that we use during a cardiac arrest. And it's different than the epinephrine that um, you use for like for EpiPen, where a person's having an anaphylactic reaction. Um, it's, uh, we use it intravenously, and it's, and it's um, uh, not as concentrated. So, Nicholas, did we get that for you? Yes, we did. All uh, right. Nitro. You, did he mention nitroglycerin? I did mention nitroglycerin, and that's helpful before a person goes into cardiac arrest. But in order to have that, really, the person would have to have it prescribed. Right. I, I, would, I wouldn't advocate um, one person giving another person another's nitroglycerin, because there are potential problems with that. If a person's having a heart attack and a very specific type of heart attack, they could they could uh, go downhill very quickly. So it's really yeah. best to so use it for people that have been evaluated by a physician. Yeah, if, so if you've had prescribed nitroglycerin, then, you know, based on the instructions of your physician, you may want to take that if you're having chest pain. But nitroglycerin Absolutely. is a potent vasodilator. So if someone has uh -huh. lost consciousness from a neurologic reason, it may hurt them. Um, so I'm glad you told why. me this because I would not have guessed that. Yep. I would have guessed yeah. epinephrine would be the one to watch out for. Nope, nitroglycerin as well. So yeah. you want to be careful with that. The one thing we do know that helps in a heart attack and stroke is aspirin. And as Fred aspirin. pointed out, chewable baby aspirin is the best and something you should always carry with you. Hey, great chatting with you. Thanks Thank you. for calling. Great. Fred, so just in talking a little bit about what's coming on in the future, is what kind of changes could we expect and how does someone get training if they've not been trained already? Well, I've learned over the years to always be prepared for your questions about what's coming in the future. Okay. Um, so, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, um, really, in, in the um, EMS industry, uh, the thing that's out there that people are using now a lot are these automatic compression devices. And the Heart Association is kind of silent on it. They haven't rendered an opinion one way or the other. But they make a lot of sense, these devices. And they're, they're not cheap, but a lot of the EMS services are getting them. They do perfect chest compressions, like like. I do this all the time, and I cannot do as good a chest compressions as these machines do. The exact consistent depth and the exact consistent speed, 100 to 120 compressions. Actually, I believe they're set for 104 compressions per minute. So that's really what's up and coming. More EMS services are getting them. Um, what, what's, what's up and coming for the lay rescuer is uh, just being more aware of, uh, of compressions and defibrillation. 
Um, you know, uh, the Heart Association in 2020 will be coming out with their next set of guidelines, and, and I, I would be willing to wager you today that it's just going to be more emphasis on compression and defibrillation because science shows those are the things that are helpful in a cardiac arrest, the most helpful. Other things we do, like at ACLS, you know that we talk about intubation and all these different meds. They're all helpful. I'm not saying they're not helpful, but the two most helpful things are the um, compressions and defibrillation. Fred, thank you. And how would someone go about getting training if they're listening and say, geez, I really need to learn CPR? What would they do? Yeah, so, you know, there's a network of training centers in Connecticut throughout, well, throughout the country, but throughout Connecticut. So um, you could go to heart.org, which is the American Heart, Association, American Heart Association's website, heart.org, and you could put in your zip code and you could find a training center near you. And another way is just to talk to people that work. You know, for example, I know if someone asked you about CPR, you would just contact me, and, and that's really how it would work. We, um, uh, your fire department, your ambulance service, they all, they all know how to get that done. Fred, thank you for your time, and thanks for right, everything Dr. you do. Take care, right, buddy. Dr. All, all right. right. Take care. Bye-bye. It was great chatting with Fred Potter. You know, and one of the things we've talked a lot about on the show has been the comprehensive centers and how really highly technical medicine has become. We talked a little bit about fetal surgery last week. But, again, getting back to the basics can be crucial to saving lives. Uh, I want to thank my guests today for taking time out, uh, Fred Potter and Kathleen Noon. Uh, Tonight, let's see, over at Mohegan Sun, a lot going on. We start the basketball season tonight with the WNBA, the Connecticut Sun. I will be at courtside. If you'd like to come down and chat, I'll be there. Many thanks to our studio producer. Kevin Wilkes has been on the board for us today. Jeff Chandler is in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. Next week, we're going to use a, a new show, but it was taped while I was at the American Academy of Neurology meeting several weeks ago. So you're going to hear a new show with a lot of new information. Next up on WTIC, we're going to have a short garden talk, and then we're going right to the Red Sox versus Tampa Bay. Please remember to help save lives by becoming an organ, eye, and tissue donor. Go to registerme.org. Until next week, I want to wish everyone a happy Mother's Day tomorrow, and please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi and is sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Big Y Pharmacy and Wellness Center, Ratchford Eye Center, Coveris, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC, News Talk 1080, and WTIC.com. Until then, stay well.